As many listeners have long suspected, your podcaster host did, as a child, run away and join the circus. Not dissimilar from a traditional childhood, it was your classic gypsy camp. If children misbehaved, we would be locked into stocks or were thrown into a cage and hoisted into the fly tower, dangling precariously over the stage. Our ringmaster, Giuseppe Grimaldi, was horribly morbid, living in perpetual fear of death and especially of being buried alive. When he finally died, his will directed that his eldest daughter cut his head from his corpse, just to be certain. Sure, perhaps a little quirky, but certainly not the oddest troupe, not pandemonium carnival. So, looking to make a career of it, your podcaster tried his hand at clown work. But by that time, famous clowns like Pagliacci, Pennywise, and Pogo were, despite slaying their audience with their routines, giving a bad name to the profession. So then, this host turned to tarot card reading and hypnosis. Despite earning some minor acclaim in London as Madame Simza, your host simply didn't have the chops and was forced to turn to the only option left, a master's in business administration. Surprisingly, it was an easy fit. Tarot cards which illuminate your past, clarify the present, show the future, had taught me everything I needed to know about finance. The card temperance, when inverted, is indicative of volatility. If one draws the fool, someone has been led astray, an investment fraud. The two cups, it represents a powerful bond, a sovereign bond. Your podcaster learned about hypnosis too, except the economics professors used different terms for it. Expectations policy, forward guidance, moral suasion. Moral suasion, moral suasion. What is that? It's a fancy term that central banks use. It's like macroprudential regulation. It can affect your finances. And we're going to ask Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. My name is Emil Kalinowski. We're going to ask Jeff what that means. Because Jeff, welcome to the show. You wrote something not too long ago. In fact, let me say it was on January 13th at the Alhambra Investments uh, blog. Uh, you wrote a title and it's called you wrote an article and the title is Suasion, sure, but is it really moral? And you start out by saying that, hey, we probably heard this in our economics class. Jeff, the very, I didn't, I did not. I went to Arizona State University. They did not talk to us about moral suasion or macroprudential regulation. The first time I ever heard the term moral suasion was in an article, it was a working paper by Carmen Reinhart and M. Bellin Sprancia the liquidation of government debt. And it's all about how the government and the central banks and the regulators will encourage financial institutions to do what they, the government, wants them to do to achieve a certain end. Is that what moral suasion is? Yeah, Emil, good morning. And that's exactly what moral suasion is. It's getting people to do things that you want them to do without hitting them over the head and, and committing physical violence, or in this case, monetary violence, right? And but look, I, I look back to my, my own economics training at a small school in Buffalo, New York. And what we were taught was Federal Reserve, money printer, 
open market operations, federal funds rate, all this really big, powerful stuff. And then, oh, by the way, moral suasion. And he's like, wait a minute, what, what was that last one? You kind of stuck that one in. What is moral suasion? Moral suasion is essentially we're big and bad. We're the government. We're the Federal Reserve. We have all the power on our side. So just do what the hell we say so that we don't have to force ourselves upon you because it's going to happen anyway. And if you stop and think about it, that sounds okay. That sounds pretty good if you think don't fight the Fed because the Fed can do whatever the Fed doesn't want it to do or the Fed can do whatever it wants it to do. And then therefore it gets the market to do these things, whatever it wants the market to do. But if you think, well, what if the Fed's just puffing itself up because it really doesn't have the ability to do these things and it's trying to get convince everyone else to do these things on its behalf because that's the only way these things will ever get done, the world looks like a very, very different place. And the, the uh, paper that you cited that uh, Mr. Reinhardt wrote, I think is a very good example of the overextended attitude that authorities have for their ability to influence behavior. And then really what it amounts to, especially through that period they called the great moderation, was taking credit for anything that happened that was positive. See, we got the markets to do it on our behalf because that's what we wanted the markets to do. When in fact, most of the times you look at individual cases as we'll do uh, going forward in the show, especially in the Japanese cases, you'll see that the markets were just doing things because the markets were doing things without any regard to monetary policy. So moral suasion is sort of a, I don't want to say it's a made up thing because it does have historical precedence, but in terms of monetary policy and economics, it's sort of a, well, what do we do since we don't actually do money? <laughs> well, the, the article, I keep calling it an article, but the working paper that was submitted to the National Bureau of Economic Research in March, 2011, Moral suasion in this article was the lightest touch because this article was all about the liquidation of government debt. And on a continuum, you have laissez-faire government touch, so very not even touching the, uh, the economy. Then you have moral suasion, do what we want you to do. Then there's regulation. And then this, this working paper was all about financial repression. So this was hardcore post-World War II debt reduction uh, regulations. And so moral suasion was the lightest touch. And as an example, I suppose, in your article, in your blog post here, you bring up Bernanke, and you said that he, one of his examples was that we conclude that under, a, this is a quote of Bernanke's, that they have a printer. And he, in a speech, you can tell the audience where the speech is from. He said, he, he said, we conclude that under a, paper money system, a determined government can always generate, generate higher spending and hence positive inflation. Now, for our, that when, I, when you first hear it, you think, yeah, all right, they can print. But for our audience, the key word is in a paper money system. We're not in a paper money system. We're not oh. bank credit system. So virtual money system. It's amazing. It's right here. He's well, he was in a paper I think, money know, system. Yeah, I can't believe it. Go on. Bernanke was technically correct, but again, he was exercising moral suasion in doing so. He was being disingenuous. What he said was, yes, the Federal Reserve can print Federal Reserve notes. And that is absolutely true. They can print physical money. But most commerce since the 1920s doesn't run on physical money. It runs through the banking system. And so he was being – what he thought was being clever. In fact, for a long time it worked. 
And what he was really saying was exactly what you were saying before about the Reinhardt paper, financial repression. What he says, except this is the opposite case of financial repression. This is supposed. This is the def- the inflationary repression, right? And so what Bernanke was saying in 2002 was, look, if the market doesn't want to act the way we want it to in, in terms of counteracting deflation, then we'll just get out our big stick printing press and start printing some damn money and inflation will happen because that's all it takes. That's what his speech boiled down to was, look, if the government wants inflation, the government will get inflation. And so why bother going through all of that problem? The market should just obey us and give us the inflation we want because otherwise we'll just do it ourselves. And eventually you say, well, Maybe you need to do it yourself because we're not seeing it. And that's really what moral suasion is, is saying, you know, it's, it's always threatening. It's always posturing. It's always stating. And you think about that in the context of the last, you know, 12, 13 years, what the market has said, okay, we've listened to your threats and your posturing and your, your coercion, except now we have a real monetary problem that we need some real damn money into it. So put up or shut up. And that's really what to the 2008 crisis was, in essence, from a monetary policy's perspective, was the market saying, look, we've, we believed you. We've believed in you for all these years. We believe you have a printing press and can do whatever you want, but these problems are too big and too real. We can't face this global dollar shortage without some actual money in the system. We need some help, Ben. And Ben said, well, <laughs> here's some more moral suasion. We'll do some <laughs> TAF auctions and we'll do some dollar swap, overseas dollar swaps and all these other things that are just more pretend action. We'll, do, we'll increase the level of bank reserves to, to give our moral suasion a little bit more credibility because it looks like we're printing money. When in fact, you know, as you pointed out, Emil, yeah, in, in a paper money system that might have worked, but we don't have a paper money system anymore. And we're not picking on Bernanke because in that speech in 2002, he knew perfectly well what was happening in Japan and that they were struggling doing exactly what Bernanke said they would be able to do, able to. And in a previous episode, we talked about how at first they weren't being uh, irrational or out of control. Uh, But in the mid-90s, they finally listened to Paul Krugman and they blew out the doors with massive fiscal spending, what we thought at the time, and zero interest rates and QE. That all happened by 2002. Bernanke knew it, but he said, well, the United States and Europe is different. Maybe they'll be able to, uh, maybe we'll be able to do it if we ever had to, but we won't because we're in the great moderation because everyone believes our moral suasion. And I love this little quote here that you put in because paraphrasing Mark Twain or Abe Lincoln, better to keep the government's printing press in its back pocket and be thought powerless by some than to actually turn the thing on and remove all doubt from everyone which is what's happened over the last 13 years. Jeff. Yeah, that's Emil. That's really the point of this year or last year too, 2020, right? The level of bank reserves and this quantitative easing equated with money printing isn't really money printing. It's attempting to give the moral suasion, this inflationary idea, more credibility. It's the idea that looks the layperson on the street has no idea what the Federal Reserve actually does. They have no idea what bank reserves actually are, but they look and sound like they're money printing, right? And you can see if you, if you care to, the level of bank reserves have exploded on the Federal Reserve balance sheet, which sounds like money printing. It looks like money printing. There's a number there that goes up tremendously. But what we find time and again is that despite the explosion in bank reserves, it doesn't lead to inflation. And let's be perfectly clear here. 
we're not really talking about inflation. We're not really seeking out consumer price increases that are going to further increase the misery upon most, uh, most of the economic participants. What we're looking for is inflation as a confirmation, a sign that monetary policy has worked, that money and credit are flowing through the economy again, that recovery processes have not only taken hold, they look to be sustainable. That's really what inflation tells us, is that not only has the recovery started, it's going to keep going, which is what we want. That's the thing we want to see. So in a lot of, a lot of ways, inflation is kind of like the last step before we get to the promised land. And what we keep finding over the last 13 years is they keep promising we're going to get into recovery and economic growth and acceleration that we'll see and be confirmed by inflationary acceleration, but it never happens. And so now here we are in 2020 and 2021 in even worse shape than we've been at any point in the last 13 years, and yet is taken for granted that this quote-unquote money printing is going to lead to inflationary acceleration and economic growth and recovery. Alan Greenspan was convinced that money supply is tied to inflation. If you don't like Alan Greenspan, what about Milton Friedman? He won, he won one of those prizes, the Nobel Prize. He also believed that inflation and money supply were intrinsically linked. Perhaps you don't like him because he was an American. Then we have Nicholas Copernicus. He figured out that the earth was rotating around the sun in a previous episode, and he's Polish. That's not bad. And he said, same thing, supply of money, inflation. Let's talk about inflation right now. Oh, you know what? Before I do that, though, you know who I want to include with those four incredible characters? Steve Van Meter. That's right. He was on a Real uh, Vision interview recently with Michael Ashton, January 13th. If anyone's watching this and they can watch that video, I encourage it. The whole show was about inflation. It was about shadow stats, the Chapwood Index. They dove into it deep, face first. So I encourage everyone to check out that show. Jeff, those five people that I just mentioned, they believe that inflation and money is all related, meaning where is inflation today? What are the latest reading telling us about inflation money supply? What have you seen in CPI? Well, the latest CPI for the month of December was, uh, especially the core rates, among the lowest in, in the CPI's history. Even the headline CPI rate, which has been boosted by oil prices a little bit in December, still was among the lowest of the last couple, uh, last decade. But it's really the core rates which tell us what's going on in the real economy, discounting pricing power by corporations passing along supposedly increased uh, production costs to, and this money supply that, that goes along with it, increased cost and increased inflation to the consumer, which we shouldn't be able to see in a broad-based fashion. Again, that's what inflation actually is. It's not prices of a certain class of products going up or one or another. It's the prices of everything going up. And instead, when we look at the core rates, especially, you know, the, the CPI less food and energy prices, as well as the services price rate, uh, excluding rent, both of those are among the low, again, as I said, in December, among the lowest in each series history. And the percentiles are just ridiculously low. I think in the, uh, in the core CPI, it was the 12th or 13th percentile which means rarely have we seen this small. 88% of the time. It's yeah, which is, it's been higher. And again, this is December 2020. After nine months of heavy Fed money printing, market support, stock market records, all of these things that supposedly point into the direction of runaway inflation, not just regular inflation, but runaway inflation that we keep hearing. Maybe even hyperinflation, dollar crash, all these big things. 
And yet in terms of consumer prices, we're seeing among the lowest levels of inflation, which indicates lack of consumer pricing power among companies. And therefore, I'll have a lot of discounting, which is suppressing these averages. And in the service sector, which is where you would see this monetary inflation most, I believe the percentile was the third percentile. Mm-hmm. So it's not just low of the low. And look, the last 10 years, the last 12 years, 11 years of, of the, this particular index have been low anyway. It's among the lowest of the lowest decade on record. So it's, you can't, it's almost like you could, it, it's the lowest possible amount of inflation in December 2020, which isn't just, hey, what's going on with QE? It directly contradicts the idea that we have an explosive money printing situation here which then gets us back to the original question was, what do Federal Reserve and what do central banks actually do? And they try to persuade you that they do inflationary things, hoping that you'll act in a way that creates deflation that they will then take credit for so so as to reinforce their credibility, which is all that monetary policy actually is. I was listening to a podcast whose name escapes me, but it was a podcast for economists that believe that central banks are central kind of a podcast. And they were talking about uh, Bernanke's job and how, what a job, good job he did. And uh, the host pushed back and said, you know, I don't know how, how good was it? And the, uh, the guest said, well, it was good because look at how Europe did worse. And that's something that Bernanke did in a paper, right? In a newspaper article, 2010, yeah. 2012, 2015. Okay, 2015, the time runs together when you're in a depression. And he said, well, it's much better than Europe. How about, do you, I know you didn't write about it in your article, but off the top of your head, do you see numbers that are different in Europe when it comes to inflation or maybe even Japan? Is this a global issue, the reaching such low levels despite central bank printing? Or is it just a U.S. phenomenon? No, it's everywhere. European inflation is actually much worse, which is, I mean, that's true. What Bernanke said in 2015 was actually true. And what, what anybody wants to say is, yes, the U.S. wasn't as bad as Europe, but that's not the same thing. It's not at all the same thing as saying Bernanke was successful. Hey, we weren't the worst of the worst. That's not a, that's not a, 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 that's not a standard for good job performance. That's just saying, look, I better cover my ass because people are going to start asking questions. Hey, at least we're not Europe is not something you want to brag about unless that's all you've got. And so, yeah, so the question of 2020 and continuing Bernanke's tradition of QE money printing, QE version of bank reserves and raising those levels, yeah, U.S. inflation is among the lowest in history. In Europe, it actually is the lowest in history. Their core inflation rates were for the fourth consecutive month, just 0.2%. That's two basis points, uh, 20 basis points of inflation in after even more enormous money printing the level of bank reserves in europe since march middle of march has doubled doubled the the quote-unquote money printing and inflation is the lowest on record for the fourth straight month running and there isn't any sign that it's going to be any better uh japan same thing japan is not not necessarily the lowest on record but their inflation rates are the lowest since the early parts of the last decade. So we're going back to before the tsunami into you know, 2009, 2010, back in outright deflation in the, uh, both the core rate and the uh, CPI. So again, massive amounts of quote unquote QE bank reserve money printing and no inflation there either. So it really gets back to the situation we described. What is it, what is it these central banks actually do? 
And if you believe that they're printing money and you act as if, oh my God, the currency is going to go down and inflation is going to rise next year because look at what the Fed's doing. They think that you'll go out tomorrow and start spending or if you're an employer, you'll start hiring people. You do these things because you believe the cost of doing those things in the future will go way up. So you do them today. Well, that's really what this is all about, trying to convince you to move up activity to today that you might not otherwise undertake because you think that inflation is going to be robust over the years ahead. I'm disappointed to hear you say that you can't say, well, I did better than Europe because that's exactly the line I used in my recent annual review. Uh, so that's not good news. It went over better with my boss. But let's hear, okay, in Bernanke's defense or central bank's defense, what about producer prices? We don't see it in consumer prices. What about producer prices? I'm in uh, the metals and mining industry and I know that copper prices are doing really well and palladium, but palladium is always doing very well. Uh, I heard that lumber prices are up very strongly. You address this issue in an article and uh, it's called, if the Fed's not in consumer prices, then how about producer prices? Alhambra Partners blog, January 15th. Jeff, what did you write in this article? Well, basically what you just said, right? It, look, if, if it's not in consumer prices, maybe it's, okay, we know commodity prices, especially industrial commodity prices, are having a really good time. Copper prices, most of all, they're up to, to levels that we haven't seen in a very, very long time. And so, in the course, the percentage rates work out to be very fair. Was it 65 70% increase in copper prices from the low? I mean, really tremendous stuff. And so, okay, maybe the Fed's money printing isn't in consumer prices. Maybe it's just starting to work its way through the, the supply chain, starting with raw material first, because as you know, a lot of people understand, commodities are one place that you go to protect yourself from future inflation. So maybe that's what's happening. Commodity prices are screaming higher, and that will then translate into the rest of the economy, go into producer prices, and then finally, as, as companies pass along these increased commodity costs to consumers in the form of consumer prices. We haven't seen the consumer prices yet, but maybe it's starting at the factory gate and it hasn't, hasn't worked its way through. Except, no, <laughs> that hasn't happened either. In fact, the PPI, which again surveys a broad, a broad level uh, or a broad uh, a number of producer prices, including commodity prices, inventory prices, finished good prices, all those kinds of things throughout the supply chain. And what they find is that, yes, producer prices are rebounding from their lows earlier in last year, including the massive increases in commodity prices. However, uh, as far as overall inflation through the producer channel goes, it's still among the lowest in the series. It's, you still haven't seen producer prices go anywhere near uh, some, some levels that would make it look like that uh, there's some kind of imminent price spike available. In fact, the latest PPI for December was about where it had been throughout much of 2013, 2014, again, on the way down in 2019. So despite the fact that industrial commodity prices are going up through the roof, seemingly because of inflationary money printing, it hasn't, hasn't in any way filtered its way into a broad, a broad uh, swath of producer prices. Let's talk about one more commodity before we wrap up this section. And it was brought up in the Steve Van Meter and Michael Ashton Real Vision interview I brought up, and that's that people, people's inflation expectations correlate like this with gasoline prices. You raised gasoline prices, or at least oil, in your article. Is there anything happening there? I 
I know that gasoline prices or oil prices are rising. What did you see in that commodity market? Well, I think it's the same thing that's in all the rest of the industrial commodities. That First of all, uh, a lot of the, the price increases in them or what's going on in, the, in the, uh, the markets themselves for those industrial commodities and including the oil market is depressed production. And then you have also hoarding that we talked about in a previous episode. So you have you know, basically a, a supply story rather than a demand story and especially nothing like a money printing story. And I think you're right because most people perceive of prices based on what they do, what they pay at their local gas station. And even though gasoline prices are up, they're still down compared to where they were a year ago. So things are rising, things are rebounding from the bottom, but coming back from the bottom, which is sort of inflationary, isn't actually inflationary, especially when you don't see it through a broad section of not just consumer, but also producer prices. It's it's, it's a very narrow trend. And then really, when you look at it in context, in an overall context, it looks nothing like the, the money printing moral suasion part of the story. Jeff, is there anything that we didn't cover in this series of articles that you wanted to bring up right now? Not that I know of. I think we got most of it. <laughs> Excellent. I'm going to get a plus on my uh, hosting duties then. Well, ladies and gentlemen, in part two of this episode, we're going to discuss bond bubbles. But are they bubbles? And is there a fundamental reason why bond prices are so high? We're going to turn to Japan and we're going to see if it's a bubble or a bubble with fundamental purpose behind it. But first, this from Eurodollar Enterprises. Friends, are you worried your monetary policies are causing lurid levels of inequality? Are you concerned civil war, its hour come round at last, slouches toward K Street? Do you worry how your supple neck will fare when the blood-dimmed tide is loose? Then the new Eurodollar Enterprises second skin neck brace is for you. Yes, strut through the wasteland knowing that marauding lynch mobs of war boys pose no danger. The carbon fiber nanoweave is comfortable, flexible, and the ultimate luxury in an April dystopia you hasn't. Barter Aquacola for Guzzoline at Thunderdome with no concern of the guillotine. Is that the road warrior with a chainsaw? Then save your skin with your second skin neck brace. New from Eurodollar Enterprises. Bubbles, champagne, economic, Bitcoin, tulips, bond bubbles. We hear about them everywhere. Jeff Snyder, head of global research at Alhambra Partners. Can you tell us about if the bond bubble in Japan, is it a bubble or are there fundamental reasons behind why prices are so high in Japan? Well, I think the, the, the question we need to begin with is we have to define a bubble. So, Emil, how would you define an asset, an asset bubble? What would, what would make you say that's a bubble? I would say that once price is acting on price, price is acting on fundamentals or the uh, – who was it that uh, is called that – what is that term? Oh, the financier that broke the British pound. What's his name? George, George Soros, Soros. Uh, and a reflexivity. So that's what I would turn to. I would say reflexivity when price is affecting fundamentals and it's detached itself from anything reasonable. I don't know. That's not a very good uh, definition. 
You know, another definition that I heard of that I really enjoyed, it was said that uh, bond, that bubbles can go to unimaginable heights and then double from there. So in, in my word morass, in my word spaghetti there, is there anything that comes close to defining a bubble? Well, I think, it, you know, I mean, you could use the Supreme Court's definition of pornography, right? Which is we know it when we see it. We, we can't really define it, but we know it when it's happening. Mm-hmm. But is that even the case? I mean, because a lot of times you think, think back. I mean, I think the most obvious bubble to most people is the dot-com stock era. You know, the late 1990s stock prices clearly went way ahead of fundamentals. But what are the fundamentals for stocks? I mean, think of things like earnings, economic growth, thing, you know, those kinds of things. It is not, it's, it's, it's a little fuzzy it's a little gray area too but at least then it's you could say that prices were behaving uh completely detached from any association with what they're supposed to be attached to right in this case earnings the ability of companies to even generate a profit um, all these kinds of things which in the late 90s added up to prices that just went up because they went up and so it was it's hard to define what that actually is except that we know it when we see it. We know that something's not right here because prices are just acting in a, in a world of their own. And so that gives us, you know, how do we, how do we use that kind of a characterization to, to analyze the bond market? Because the bond market, when we look at, you know, yields, the opposite of yield is actually price, right? And so when we see bond yields fall to extremely low levels and stay there, that means bond prices, generally speaking, must be extremely high. And so if the price of the bond market is extremely high and it stays there, that kind of already meets the, the, the cursory first step definition of what a bubble is, right? Because we need prices to be that de- detached and usually that means prices that are way too high. And so do we ask, I have to ask ourselves, what would a bond bubble actually be? What would, what would it be where bond prices are so high that they're materially uh, disagreeing with whatever the fundamentals are. You know, I'm, I'm relieved that you told me that it's a fuzzy definition because I was struggling, but it makes me think of two examples. One is a dark one, forgive me, but the one that I can think of is, of course, money. We talk about it all the time, Jeff, how the Federal Reserve has given up on being able to define money because it's so f- it's so fuzzy, so many multifarious products. And the other, the other example is a dark one, but it's a true story, so I'm going to share it with the audience. It's very much along the lines of pornography and uh, what's obscene in the famous Supreme Court case. But after World War II, there was a group of concentration camp survivors who created um, an institution, a group, whereby they would go around the world and identify concentration camps and therefore bring the world's attention to to the to the you know the the crimes against humanity being perpetrated in different places around the world would you believe jeff that when these concentration camp survivors sat down to try to define what a concentration camp is they could not agree on it similar to obscenity or the definition of money or a bond bubble. And, and this is one of the horrible, this is the horrible punchline. They couldn't quite agree as to what a concentration camp would be defined as. But one of, one of the people who's there said that the only way you wouldn't know it when you see it, you would know it when you smelled it. And that was just, just heartbreaking. 
And I don't know how to segue. I'm not a professional <laughs> professional uh, host. I don't know how to segue from that story. If you have anything to say, let me know. Yeah, Otherwise, that's, I'm that's gonna... it, basically, it's at some point, it's not like it, it's a flipping a switch, right? If we're getting into an asset bubble or getting you know, human nature going to its darkest spaces, it's not like you... It's not like a binary option where you're safe and then you're not safe. There's always that gray area where, you know, things get stretched, but they still might be reasonable. And reasonable is a subjective term. And in a lot of cases, I think that's what we're saying here. Bubbles might be a subjective term. So we have to be able to analyze and check our assumptions and say, has prices gotten out of hand with what they're supposed to be pricing? What is a bond market in terms of sovereign bonds? What are they supposed to price? And the answer is, by and large, because it's the risk-free rate upon which most of the financial system is built, it's two things, essentially, real economic growth and inflation. That's really what bond yields have historically related to, and bond prices, therefore. And we can even add the money example to it, because we're talking about repo and repo collateral, with which these are the, the, the most uh, prime examples of, of, of money collateral in terms of the repo market in the U.S. dollar and, and global system. You know, there are times when high prices of money make sense, too. Uh, you think about traditionally in the gold standard system when people hoarded gold and physical currency. The price of those, those instruments went way up through the roof. But there was a fundamental reason for that. There was a reason was because people didn't trust the banking system. They didn't trust the economic opportunities that were available for their money flowing through the banking system. And so there are, there are legitimate cases for prices of especially financial and monetary instruments to go up and even stay up for prolonged periods of time that aren't necessarily bubbles. That's right. I love that point that you made. We're saying, what is the fundamentals? Well, the fundamentals change depending on the circumstance. And uh, you're talking, and right now, so the fundamental will be different during an economic boom, Okay. And then they're different during an economic depression, which is what Japan finds itself in since the early 90s. And uh, one of you mentioned economic activity and inflation as being the two fundamental drivers of sovereign bonds. But, Jeff, we also know one more liquidity, right? In an economic depression where you don't want to stick your nose out too far, you want to be in the safest, most liquid assets. And Sovereign bonds are that. Right, and that's, that's, that's what drives the fundamentals for safe instruments, right? And I'm glad you brought up liquidity because we were going to get to that eventually, but now's a great time to talk because look, what does inflation and economic growth really mean? What they mean is that you have legitimate opportunities for things outside of safe instruments, right? If we expect inflation to be robust, the last thing you're going to want to be in is a, is a boring safe instrument. You're going to want to chase those nominal returns wherever you can find them. If economic growth is legitimately good, you're going to be able to find good opportunities outside of government bonds anywhere. So why the hell would you want low return in government safe yields? So that's the fundamentals of government bonds because it reflects the inverse of what's, what's supposedly taking place in the rest of the system. And if things are inflationary and good, there's little demand for safe instruments. And if things are not good and inflationary in the rest of the system, you would expect high demand for these low-risk, high-liquidity instruments. And it's just a matter of, okay, let's look at the prices of these things and decide whether or not they make sense 
given our interpretation of those fundamentals and therefore those very fundamental trade-offs that the market is, is, is working its way through. So if you are a central banker and you believe that banks, central banks are central to money, if you're an economist, if you write for the New York Times, then you believe you're not in a depression. If you can write out depressions because now it's a great moderation and central bankers are technocrats who are steering economies, then it is a bubble, right? Because you don't believe it's a depression. You don't believe that's the fundamental truth. But as you say, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote you now, quote, but as to the potential for any bond bubble, no, this is all just fundamental backing for a reasonable and rational basis behind persistently low interest rates. The fact that the Bank of Japan hasn't been able to alter the underlying condition only establishes that the Bank of Japan cannot alter the underlying condition. Jeff, does that mean that it's going to be politicians that will be and people that will alter the underlying condition? No, mostly it's the banking system. <laughs> it's the monitors. But look, the Japanese example, I think, is perfect. And I think it's, a par- it's an unfortunate parallel because we keep repeating every mistake they've made. But when you look at the Japanese uh, economy, just look, just chart real GDP. And I know you have to splice together two different data sources, which I've done, but it, it's reasonable to do so. What you see is around 1990, 1991, rapid growth turned to sort of, you know, uneven, undesirable, unsatisfactory levels of growth. And it stayed that way for 30 years. And it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's a true inflection point in GDP right around the time that the big Japanese late 80s asset bubbles collapsed. From that point forward, it's been an entirely different economy. And in fact, no matter what the Bank of Japan do, did or the, the central government of Japan in its money finance fiscal expansion, which I think we're going to get to later, no matter what the bank, no matter what authorities did anywhere, they could not alter the the long term trajectory of the economy, which favors high or uh, you know high liquidity, low low risk instruments like Japanese government bonds. So we have low economic growth, low inflation that do seem to correspond with the fundamentals of high prices in the Japanese government bond market, and that's why despite. How many decades now of people calling that a bond bubble, saying interest rates have nowhere to go but up because it can't go on forever? Here we are 30 years later, and you know, Japanese tens are still around zero. You just said it a moment ago, Jeff. And if you say it really fast, money finance fiscal expansion, it sounds like modern monetary theory. If you say it really slow, money finance fiscal expansion, it sounds like modern monetary theory. Uh, tell us uh, what is the first item and yeah, if it's related to the latter. I know it sounds a lot like it's, it was something that Janet Yellen and Joe Biden cooked up for the new administration, right? They're going to go nuts with the Federal Reserve is going to buy all these bonds and you know they're going to essentially monetize the fiscal government's debt, which is going to explode upward, which is no different than what's been going on for quite a while now. But this is not something that's brand new. It's not something that was just cooked up recently. In fact, there was a lot of talk about money finance fiscal expansion in the early part of the 2000s as economists sat around and looked at late, late 90s Japan and said, what the hell did they do wrong? And the funny thing is when you look at late 90s uh, Japan, what you see is 
they actually practice a high degree of money finance fiscal expansion. Now, it wasn't direct in the way we're talking about central banks buying, you know, government bonds and, and financing the uh, the fiscal expansion that way. Instead, fiscal expansion was off the books through something called the Trust Fund Bureau, which was essentially intentionally an off the book. In fact, it got to be so big in the 90s, they called it Japan's second budget for that very reason. I think by 1999, the uh, Trust Fund Bureau's activity, actually the FILP's activities were about 70% of what was on budget according to the central government. Now, the way the Trust Fund Bureau funded itself was that it took in deposits from the Postal Service. Now, uh, in Japan, rather than savings banks like in trust uh, thrift associations that we have in the United States, most of the Japanese, you know, regular Japanese people save their money at the post office, the Japanese equivalent of the post office is basically a government savings plan that's essentially a large government run bank. And a lot of those deposits end up at the trust fund bureau and the trust fund bureau then uses that deposit based money to, to finance all sorts of things, including buying JGBs from the government, including um, funding something called the FILP, which was engaged in public works projects, grants to private corporations, uh, further money to, you know, I think it was 32 different agencies, but essentially all the things that you would associate with fiscal expansion, right? And so what we have is running through the Trust Fund Bureau, getting deposits from the Japanese Postal Service, and then financing the FILP. You have a high degree in the 1990s of Japan using money-financed fiscal expansion. And of course, since we're talking about Japan doing this in the 1990s, we know what the exact result of it was. It didn't work. It didn't increase economic growth, except maybe arguably in short terms, in, in short bursts like, you know, 1995 and 1996, which, you know, that gets credited to fiscal expansion and Keynesian stimulus when it might just have been natural reflationary parts of the economy. But either way, it did not alter the fundamental outlook for the Japanese economy. It didn't increase inflation. It didn't lead to runaway inflation. In fact, throughout most of that period, the CPI in Japan was actually negative. It was outright deflation. So at best, you say, well, this money finance fiscal expansion was irrelevant. It really didn't seem to have much of an effect. Certainly on inflation, it had no effect at all. And so when we look at the, you know, look at the Japan, Japanese example, First of all, it's eerily similar in all of the things that are being tried and being done. And we look at what people are saying today about what's going to happen in the United States over, and not just the United States, look at Europe too, over the next year or so. And, oh my God, it's going to lead to a runaway inflation. Well, I mean, I suppose it possibly could, but if we look at the only examples in the real world where these things have been tried, it sure didn't. So why would it, why would it go into, why would it lead to a different outcome this time as opposed to the last time, when everything aligns with that, when everything says we're just repeating the Japanese mistakes of 20 years ago. Right now, you were referencing another essay that you had written for Real Clear Markets, and that was posted on January 15th. And for those interested, you can read it, and it's called They Keep Assuring Us Japan Can't Happen Here. And Jeff, in the article, in the essay, you note that it, the FILB the flip, FILP, accounted for, estimated, 70% of the government spending on the books. That sounds tremendous, tremendous, and yet it didn't work. Is that because the private economy is so much bigger 
that 70% of Japanese government spending off the books is simply not enough? Is it because, as Ben Bernanke told the Congress in 2009, that for recovery, you need to fix the financial system, the financial institutions? Is, is that what was missing here? I'm just, you know, I didn't know this, and I'm surprised that such a thing was a failure. Well, money finance fiscal expansion, first of all, in theory, it sounds like the exact right remedy, right? If the mm -hmm. problem is the banking system, the, the clogged monetary transmission, you know, they talk about the transmission mechanism being clogged all the time. If the banking system is the, the, the place where you can't get anything through, you can't force money through the banking system, therefore you can't get recovery, it sounds like it makes perfect sense to go around it. And that's really what money finance fiscal expansion is. If we can't get the banking system to do the recovery stuff we need it to do, then screw it. We'll go around it. We'll use the government to, to, to fund projects directly. We'll use government grants to fund corporate projects directly, public works, whatever it, else, whatever it needs to be. And we'll take the, we won't, we won't, um, we won't issue bonds. It won't be bond finance fiscal expansion because that, that has negative effects on the economy. What we're really trying to do is, is to minimize what we think is the, the government intrusion upon real economic processes so that we can get around the banking system directly to the real economy and get the thing started again. If it leads to a little bit of inflation or even some out-of-control inflation, that's better than this deflationary hell that we're stuck in now. And so that's really the point of money finance fiscal expansion is to go around all of the problems. And the reason it doesn't work, and certainly the reason it didn't work in Japan is the government spending, public works, these kinds of things are not good, good enough substitutes for real economic processes. What the government does, yes, they, as John Maynard Keynes said in the general theory, hey, let's build pyramids in the desert. doesn't matter if they're useless. As long as we're doing something, it doesn't matter. Well, that's never been true. Real government, these kinds of government projects, they don't create wealth. They don't create sustainable enterprises. This is what actual recovering growth is made of. It's just activity for the sake of activity. And it doesn't matter if you finance it through something like the Trust Fund Bureau or the Federal Reserve buying U.S. Treasuries. It still leads to the same thing, which is you're not creating wealth. All you're doing is wasting resources on essentially um, inefficiency. Jeff, is there anything that we didn't cover in your articles here that you wanted to bring up now? So far as I think the only other thing we want to look at is how the bond market in Japan responded to all of these things happening. One of the points I made in that article was that uh, the 1998-99 the bond route that we talked about in JGPs before, uh, it even had a name called the Trust Fund Bureau Shock, which was the Trust Fund Bureau in late 1998, because Japan was faced with all of these these economic uncertainties, which was a renewed sharp recession. In fact, it was the worst recession up until that point in Japan. Um, the Trust Fund Bureau announced that they were going to taper their purchase of JGBs because, as I said before, they were one of the big buyers in the Japanese government bond market using postal fund deposits to essentially buy JGBs. So they said, look, we can't buy bonds anymore. At the same time, the Japanese central government was saying, we got to issue a lot more JGBs to cover our deficits. And it looked like, this all should sound familiar to us today, it really looked like the Japanese government bond market was primed to just blow up. You have a big buyer stepping back. In fact, they weren't just tapering the purchase. The Trust Fund Bureau stepped out of the JGB market entirely for a couple months. As At the same time, the, gov the government was issuing tons of government debt. And it did. It, lead to a, it led to a serious sell-off in government, Japanese government bonds. But as I know, as you pointed out, Emil, we look, look back at the, the longer-term chart, it barely shows up as a blip. 
it was really not that big of a deal. It was the market having a knee-jerk reaction to things it didn't like and thought, well, maybe this is bad. But over time, it realized, again, the fundamentals of the Japanese system were favorable to high prices, continued high prices in government bonds.